Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Welcome to Fried, the Burnout Podcast, Season 5. The goal of each Fried episode, whether you're an entrepreneur, parent, employee, or otherwise defined, is to create moments of spontaneous healing by ensuring that you feel seen, heard, connected to others, and validated. By doing this, Fried fulfills its mission to kill the shame, blame, and judgment associated with burning out, and Fried adds to its original goal of creating a movement to hashtag end burnout culture. Should you need a coach, Fried coaches are standing by to help guide you through recovery. Book a call anytime by visiting the links in the show notes. Should you need a speaker, you can hire me, Kate, and you can rest assured that your people will have fun and learn about burnout at the same time. In the meantime, I'm ready to give you this week's episode, which will help you heal just a little bit more, starting now. All right, Fried fans, welcome back to another episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Kristen Neff with us, who, and this is very exciting to me because I have been following her work for a very long time, it feels to me, and one of my favorite things about her, not 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 yet knowing her, one of my favorite things about her writing, I should say, is that it makes me feel less alone and more normal. And I want that to come through for you today. So we're going to normalize being normal people in the world, even when we have platforms and books and podcasts and TED talks that went viral and and still just being normal people. So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Kristen Neff is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. She is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion nearly 20 years ago. She has been recognized as one of the most influential researchers in psychology worldwide. She is the author of the best-selling book, Self-Compassion. Along with her colleague, Chris Germer, Germer? Germer. Germer. She developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, taught internationally, and co-wrote the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. Her newest book, which we will talk about today, is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Dr. Neff, welcome to the show. Hi, call me Kristen. Call you Kristen, Uh, okay. Can I call you Kate? Yes, absolutely. That's my only name, so that makes it easy. Good. So we always start the show with our guest's burnout story. So I'll ask you to share that in a minute, but before you do, I'm going to jump into a very short quote from the very beginning of your book, page nine, the introduction. And you said, all you need to have self-compassion is to be a flawed human being like everyone else. Low bar. Low, yeah. low bar, right? You but can, I, I can check that box. I can definitely <laughs> check that box. So, and I think that that's important because it feels like sometimes I have to remind my listeners and go into my Facebook group and remind people that just because I know a lot about burnout doesn't mean that I'm never making mistakes. And just because I've figured some stuff out doesn't mean that I've figured it all out. And so I think it's important for people that have platforms to pay, to, to remind everybody. Yes. Like, Hey, we're human. Yeah. So with that, please. Well, uh, to that point, I mean, I, as you, as you, if you read my books, I get, I put a lot of my dirty laundry out there. I'm actually a private person and it feels uncomfortable for me. It's actually quite excruciating. Yeah. I knew that if I came across as this like together self-help guru, you know, that would be, first of all, it'd be inauthentic, but it actually would be less helpful. So I talk about all my problems and all my mistakes and everything in a very candid way. Uh, but also how I use self-compassion to get me through and to, you know, foster self-acceptance and uh, kindness, even though, yes, I'm a very flawed human being like everyone else. Yeah. I also have to say, one of the reasons I'm happy to be on your podcast is Chris Gerber and I just signed a contract. We're now writing 
the self-compassion rescue kit for burnout. Oh, great. Burnout is such a worldwide phenomenon. And it's really about hands-on. It's not, I mean, it, it mentions burnout, but it's not really a book about burnout. There's a lot of stuff out there on burnout. It's really concrete, hands-on practices you can use if you identify as someone who's burnt out. Cannot so. wait for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's just such a thing now. Um, and, and people, people need tools, yes. need practices to help now, immediately yesterday. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So you found yourself in a burnout zone in the past. Oh yeah. I mean, many times, I mean, so, so for my story, um, I mean, I won't talk about recent times of the pandemic because I think everyone's burned out of the pandemic and, you know, pandemic fatigue. And of course, my son, you know, my son, um, when he was staying home from school and it was just and everything, you know, all my workshops, my source of income, was like had to be switched online and what I make it and all those stressors came up. But I still have it a lot easier now than um, I think the time probably in my life when I was closest to burnout. Now, luckily, I don't say I, I managed to keep myself from going to the very bottom of the pit because I had my self-compassion practice. But that, that is when I was raising my son. So as I write about a lot, he's autistic. Um, and luckily I started my practice of self-compassion. Well, you know, well, even well before I had him. So I kind of was able to deal with it when it came up, but you know, it was, it was really tough in the early years. For instance, he wasn't potty trained until he was five. Yeah. And uh, his father is on my ex, but we had, we had the brilliant idea when he was about three, everyone said, well, just take him out of diapers. He'll it'll be so uncomfortable. He'll just go to the potty, not for two more years. So, I mean, just think about constantly like without diapers and his pants and tangerine. And it was just, and I was also trying to get my career off. You know, I was doing the self-compassion research and, trying to be a career woman and trying to raise an autistic son. He was a potty trained and he was tantruming at the drop of the hat. And it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, and I can say that if it wasn't for my self-compassion practice, I don't know how I would have gotten through it. I mean, I probably would have scraped by, but it really... I mean, I was really able to see how it is such a good preventative for burnout. Now, for, first of all, just to say, it's not like you sp sprinkle magic dust and you know, burnout goes away, especially because a lot of burnout is structural, right? A lot of burnout is because we're overworked or we're being treated unfairly or underpaid or, the, you know, unequal social systems. We don't want to, and that's actually where fierce self-compassion comes in. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but at least one big contributor to burnout as if we don't resource ourselves, if like any, the last little scrap of energy we spend on others, taking care of others, if we're like, we're hard on ourselves or cold to ourselves because we just think we should be doing more. If we, if we add fuel to the fire by judging ourselves, why well, must be something wrong with me. No one else is burned out. It's just me. You know, all those things we do, yeah. it just makes it so much worse. So the ability to be self-compassionate. So just just to say what self-compassion is. Well, compassion yeah. is to suffer in the Latin, con is with, is how, how, how are we with our suffering? Are we kind, are we warm, are we supportive? Do we really think about well, what do I need to be well in this moment, just like we would for a friend? Or are we cold, are we judgmental? Are we, you know, do we ignore our own needs? And the more we're able to deal with our suffering, including feelings of exhaustion, you know, depersonalization, detachment, all that that comes with burnout, um, the more we're able to, to reconnect, right? So it's, it's, the reason it's good for burnout is for so many reasons. A, resources you. Burnout is feeling depleted, yeah. right? So when you turn the lens of compassion inward with kindness, warmth, asking yourself, what do I need? It helps um, give you energy. Also, another thing about burnout, as you know, I'm sure you talk about all this time, is this feeling of disconnection, right? This feeling of isolation and kind of like, we just feel cut off and less connected to the people in our lives. Um, but compassion, as, I, as you mentioned before, it's, it's, a, it's a connected stance. It's like, I am a flawed human being who's suffering like everyone else. It's not self-pity, poor me. That would just make us feel more disconnected. It's okay, life's tough for everyone. There's nothing wrong with me. This is normal, it's part of the human experience. 
And when we remember to feel connected in our suffering, that also is a direct antidote to burnout. So, and there's other ways it's useful as well, but those are probably two of the biggest. And uh, two of the very biggest. And one of the things that I think is important about this particular book about fierce self-compassion, a lot of this book, you talk about the Tao and the balance between yin and yang, which is important to me because I have been an acupuncturist for 15 years. So this is the the core of everything that I have learned and done. So I, I want to take a minute to talk about this sort of difference between self-compassion in that tender way, like you call tender self-compassion versus fierce self-compassion. Because like you say in the book, there are a lot of people that fear that if they are too self-compassionate, they will lose motivation. They won't be able to make progress. They won't be productive because they're being too nice to themselves. And there's a there's some, there's more nuance in there for us to pick apart. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing related is I think they'll be weak, that they won't be strong, they won't be yes. able to deal with things. Um, and so I use the metaphor of, of yin and yang, which is just, you know, it's one of the big gifts, that I think, of human understanding, the, the Tao and the idea of yin and yang. Um, so so the, the yin side of self-compassion is more the tender part of self-compassion, and that is hugely important. This is what allows us to be with ourselves as we are, flaws and all to be with our pain instead of like trying to immediately fight it or saying it can't be here to say, okay, well, this is part of life. Can I open to it enough to try to heal? Um, so there is a kind of like a mother energy. I talk about, you know, the gentle mother who, you know, your baby screaming its head off, you know, calm that baby, soothe that baby You're with the baby, the baby starts to calm down. Very important. But compassion isn't only about tenderness or acceptance, it's also about taking action, right? Think of a firefighter who jumps into a burning building to save the people that are trapped inside. That is an act of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's also an action, very brave action, an act of courage. And I, I like to call this mama bear self-compassion. So this instinct to protect, you know, to provide for people's needs and to motivate change, especially if something's unfair, or situations unfair, um, or we're, we're in behaviors or situation that's not good for us. That's also a key aspect of compassion. And that's more the yang energy. So in the Tao, you know, yin is more the gentle acceptance, yang is more the fierce action. Both are absolutely necessary. And of course, at some level, the duality even just starts to so integrate, it's not even dual anymore, but we don't have to go yeah. there. But here, here's the thing. The reason I, I wrote this book for a woman, and I don't know if this had come to you before this idea, but the Tao teaches us both are essential aspects of being human, yin and yang, fierceness and tenderness. But we've gendered these damn things. Yeah. Men are allowed to be, you know, men, men are fierce, they're raised to be fierce, active, get things done, agentic, but they better not be too tender or soft. People make fun of them. And that cuts men off from this incredibly powerful emotional resource of healing, this tenderness. Women, well, we're allowed to be tender, well, to others, not ourselves, but to others. But, you know, if we're too fierce or God forbid we get angry, you know, there's a problem. And so basically through gender role socialization, we're, we're baking in the lack of health because the health, lack of health is defined as an imbalance between yin and yang and gender roles make it almost impossible for us to be balanced. And so if you really look into compassion, which is, you know, what do I need to be well? what we need is to be balanced. And to do that, that means you end up being a feminist or you end up being a radical agent of social change because our society and our culture doesn't really promote balance. It promotes imbalance. And it's a kind of, it's a radical act to say, uh-uh, I'm not going to buy your storyline of who I'm supposed to be because of, you know, the sex I was assigned at birth or because of what you think women are like or men are like. Now, I'm going to be my authentic, true, healthy self which is fierce and tender, yin and yang, true to myself, caring about others, including myself in the circle of compassion. This is a um, such a mind game for so many of us because that all of that socialization has been so deeply internalized and yes. we are most often not aware of it. And yes. there are neurochemical and hormone components that can promote it as well, right? We have the tendon befriend and more oxytocin and, and estro- estrogen dominance 
you know, creates more of that. So there's right. there's this cultural context and there's this biological context. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not saying there are no biological differences, right? But a lot of the differences are just pure socialization. So for instance, if you have a woman fire someone, her testosterone increases. Right. Or if a man's cuddling his baby, his um, estrogen increases, yeah. right? So, you know, yeah, they're, they're, I'm not saying where they're all exactly the same, but every single one of us needs to be balanced. And here's the thing, in their own unique way. Right. You know, depending on your gender identity or what feels true. For, like, I'm actually more young than yin by nature. Yeah. You know, my part, my colleague, Chris Gerber, is actually more yin than young. Everyone expresses this in their own unique way. But with the idea is we should be allowed to find what is true and authentic for us as opposed to being controlled by these norms of what's supposed to be correct for us. Yeah. That's where the, the real problem comes in. Yeah. It's led to things like, well, patriarchy, right? Yeah. What, why do women not, why are women not at the top echelons of business? Well, we know from the research because men are considered agentic, women are considered nurturing. You have to be agentic to do, to rise to the tops of business, but people don't like agentic women because they think she's not nurturing and there she's, a, you know, they call her the B word. Yeah. And so it all goes on unconsciously. Yeah. You, you can know, totally so, say bitch on this podcast, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So this, that's what, <laughs> you know, look at Hillary Clinton, someone like that, or some of these really powerful female leaders, um, they're disliked if they're too agentic, if, if they display the very qualities that are needed to be successful. Yeah. And also the fact that in the work world, we're, we're in balance, we're fierce without tender. We need to be agentic, but if we don't care, then the least to things like capitalism and exploitation of resources. So the whole thing is out of whack. Yeah. So we need to, we need to come into balance. We need to care about ourselves and others. We need to, you know, not just exploit. We need to make change, but not to the point where it harms what is. But this needs to start with ourselves. People are, I think a lot of people realize the external political system or environment is out of whack. Maybe what they don't realize is that internally we're often also out of balance. Yeah. Part of being balanced, coming into balance is by opening our hearts to ourselves as well as others. And in a way that sometimes is courageous and brave, actually courage means open your heart opening your heart and being brave, making change, standing up for social justice, meeting your needs, motivating change, and also opening your heart to be accepting. And so it has to start at home. Otherwise, none of the external changes will last because we, we need both internal and external. Yeah, and this is something um, we talked about on a podcast episode last year. You guys, I'll throw the link in the show notes with Shante Javon Taylor, who is a neuroscientist about this, this same idea that when we make these changes within our own lives, it's much easier to create that external change because we stop and which my goal of this podcast, our, the hashtag with fried is end burnout culture. And we end burnout culture because we stop participating in it. Fried fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? Cyfox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. Go to cyfoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. Yes, exactly. And so here's so some of the things that contribute to burnout culture, and it's huge and it can't be yeah. reduced. Um, and again, so some of it, not, not to harp on gender too much, but one of the things that's challenging is this for women, especially we're raised to be people, people pleasers. Yeah. 
and we're, we're uncomfortable saying no because we're afraid people won't like us with if we say no. And by the way, some people may not like it as much if we say yeah. no. Really yeah, that, that might be true. Exactly. They're really happy for us to say yes to everything and do you know whatever other people want. Um, and so learning to draw boundaries and to say no and to say, you know, I'm sorry if you don't like me, but my worth doesn't stem from whether or not you like me. My worth is intrinsic because I'm a human being who's worthy of respect, just like every other human being. Amen. And that allows us to draw boundaries, which is a really big thing for reducing burnout culture. I think the number one thing. So for instance, we taught self-compassion at a, a children's hospital. We actually yeah. developed a whole self-compassion training program for healthcare professionals, largely to pre prevent burnout. And it, by the way, it did. It reduced um, Maslach burnout inventory, it reduced burnout, depersonalization, exhaustion, all those things. But what it ended up doing is it actually changed the culture of the yeah. hospital because the hospital is all about like self-sacrifice and how many shifts did you work in a row and how little sleep did you get? It's almost like people were getting their pride from being self-sacrificing. Yeah. And once we came in and started training people in self-compassion, the culture started shifting and people were like, hey, if we take a break, or they would like say, you know, put your, go easy on yourself. They would actually encourage each other to be self-compassionate, to be supportive to themselves, and then actually started changing the culture. Now, I mean, not that they're still, it's owned by a big corporation. There's still lots of problems. Again, it's not magic dust, but it helped, really helped start to change the culture. Now, one of the things that I think is crucial that you mentioned that I find that people really struggle with, especially when it comes to boundaries, is this idea of the near enemy. Ah. Right. That when there is a state that you're aiming to add to your life, you want to be more fierce, you want to create better boundaries. Sometimes you go so far into it that you create something that looks like it. So near yes. enemy, it looks like it, but it's not exactly accomplishing the thing you want it to accomplish. Like this is always how I feel when I see Instagram memes that say no is a complete sentence. I'm like, sometimes, but sometimes yes. you're just being an asshole when you do that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that, so, so I talk about it in the book. So, um, so tenderness without fierceness, like being accepting, um, the near enemy is complacency, right? Right. Sometimes when you're just saying yes, and you think you're being nice and you're being kind, what you're really just being is complacent or you aren't, you know, doing enough to make the changes you need to make. Yeah. But the near enemy of fierceness without tenderness is basically aggression, mm -hmm. right? So if you're harming other people, so saying just no and not explaining it, you actually may be harmed. Maybe someone actually deserves an explanation or cuts down communication. Um, so anger, I've got a lot about anger in the book. Yes. Um, and by the way, I'm not an anger expert. I wrote about it mainly because I struggle with anger. So it's coming <laughs> That's not as opposed to someone who's got it all together. But Anger can actually be in the service of compassion if it's aimed at reducing harm. Anger is a problem if it causes harm. And it is, it's a fine line and it's not easy. And I'm, I'm certainly the last one in the world to say that it's easy not to fall into the opposite side. But we need to acknowledge and honor the fact that anger has a role. It's an evolved emotion. Anger focuses us, it energizes us, you know, it gives, gives, uh, reduces the fear response. So again, if, if you need to like protect someone, if you're mama bear, again, when you're angry, someone's threatening you or your children, that anger is actually very useful for protection. Yeah. So it's, you know, just, we need to be aware of that, honor our anger. And again, for women, it's a problem because women aren't allowed to be angry. So they suppress it and then it gets bottled up and all of a sudden they say, oh, an alien took, this alien force took over me. It's not me, it's this alien force. Because if we own it, yes, I get angry, especially when I'm being treated unfairly or someone's crossing my boundaries or, yeah. you know, there's, um, I'm being harmed in some way. We need to be angry. Look at the Me Too movement. Women finally yeah. got really angry and said, it's not okay. No, stop. Yeah. Thank um, you, Tarana Burke, for, exactly. for kicking that off. Yeah. Right. yeah. I and like then, this so idea of anger. I like yeah. this a lot. And one of the people that listen to the podcast are, are well aware that my um, big, my most requested talk at the moment, my most requested workshop in corporate worlds and in motivational worlds is resentment is your superpower. 
Interesting. Uh-huh. Right, so people are asking for it now because people don't know what to do with all this buildup after this past couple of years. And one mm-hmm. of the things that you say in the section about you know women and anger, this is page 68 in the book, right at the top of the page, I, I underlined it and then I put a box around it and then I wrote, ouch, next to it. <laughs> and it says, because women aren't allowed to express anger outwardly the same way that men are, we tend to turn it inward in the form of self-criticism. And I just, we, my husband and I were just watching physical uh, on Apple TV uh-huh. and she has an eating disorder and her inner monologue is promoted. You know, it's, it's constantly open on the TV and she, the way that she talks to herself. And my husband was like, wow, th- this is really intense. And I was like, oh no, that's what we sound like. And he was yeah. like, what? Yeah. You talk to yourself like that? And I was like, oh, yeah. We think oh, it's, yeah. We think, we think it helps. Yeah. And so, at some level, because it's actually the threat response. So we're angry because we feel threatened. So you feel threatened if you don't look the way you want to look. Or you feel insecure or people accept you or you feel out of control. So the anger arises to kind of fight off the danger. But, of course, the, the problem is yourself. So we turn it inward. You know, and this isn't logical, but we think, well, either we'll control ourselves, like with eating disorders, right? Maybe we'll be able to control our eating. Yeah. Or if we pummel or if we beat our others to the punch, you know, it's not going to hurt as much if people make fun of me if I make fun of myself first. Right. You know, all those behaviors are really, we shouldn't beat ourselves up for beating ourselves up either. <laughs> right. Because safety responses, right? We just want to be safe. Um, but it's just, it's just totally counterproductive. The more effective way to be safe is to be supportive and say, what do I need right now to be well? Yeah, let's say that question again, simply, what do I need right now to be well? Yeah, and you you may not know the answer, and it may be trial and error. You know, it's a process. It's not like you get to the state of perfection, not quite the opposite. Yeah, another thing, I've got a chapter in there, the compassionate mess. Mm -hmm. The goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. You will be a mess till the day you die. Because that's what it means to be human. None of us are superhuman, maybe except for people who are resentful, but I'm kidding. (laughs) None of us are superhuman. We're human beings, which means we're a mess. We make mistakes. We get it wrong. And it's how do we relate to that mess with judgment, with, you know, do we think somehow I shouldn't have made that mistake, right? Well, you know, how are you supposed to know? You know, you wouldn't have made the mistake if you knew the right thing to do, right? So it's relating to the whole mess with compassion. And when we do that, this quality of, again, warmth, care, support, encouragement, sometimes like mama bear kick you in the butt, you got to get off your butt and do something because you're, you know, you're, you're harming yourself right now. All that, um, it can be done with the mess. It's not mm-hmm. instead of the mess. It's how we relate to the mess. And that's enough. Yeah. You know, we're, it's good enough. It, it'll get us through. And by the way, um, we also teach this, for instance, to high-level college athletes, yeah. people who, for maybe you know, maybe second best isn't good enough. They want to go to the Olympics. They want, or they want to get a percent with the protein. If you're self-compassionate, your standards aren't any lower. What it means is, I'm still okay, even if I don't meet my standards. But maybe my athletic performance isn't okay. Maybe it's not good enough. Maybe I do want to do better. But I am okay, even if my performance isn't. And so what happens when you do that is actually, first of all, you have less performance anxiety because if you, if you, you know, say you play a game and you fall a little bit short, it's okay because, okay, well, that's only human. I'll just try again. That reduces performance anxiety, actually makes it more effective for you to learn, okay, where did I go wrong? How could I improve? And it leads to things like growth motivation. If you blow the game or miss a shot and that for means you're bad, you, yeah. you take it personally. Then you've got anxiety, you undermine your self-confidence, and then you just go on this downward spiral. Yeah. So this so, is, this sounds like a, like things that Susan Davis talks about. Do you know Susan Davis? I'm not familiar with her. She, her book is Emotional Agility. Oh, okay. And she does a lot of stuff on, on LinkedIn. Her book is really wonderful. But it's this idea of identifying with the wrongness, the shame, the anxiety, being that thing instead of that thing existing and you being in relation to it. Exactly, exactly. And that's what self-compassion is. Instead of taking it personally or identifying with it, 
Uh, we give ourselves we give ourselves compassion for the experience because it's painful at the same time that it doesn't touch who we really are because who we are is intrinsically valuable. We're human beings living, we're, we're awareness, right? We're each one of us is doing the best we can in the moment, given what life has given, you know, has brought to the table. Um, so this idea of worth being intrinsic was a huge part of my own burnout recovery because I self-identified as a healer. So therefore I was useful when I was healing people. And when I wasn't, I was not useful or valuable, which meant that in every relationship I had, I had to be somehow improving someone's life every time we were together. Because if I wasn't, then I lost my value. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so when, when a baby is born, do we say, okay, that baby will be worthy of care and compassion and kindness once they go to college or get, you know, we don't, we, we, we understand with a newborn, the, the intrinsic value of life. And we don't lose that. We just we just start becoming identified with all these external things and we forget, we forget our intrinsic value. But you know, it is radical because you have intrinsic value, but that also means everyone else does. Yeah. Right. So, you know, that's why it's compassion, compassion turned inward, but it also means compassion turned outward. It's basically every single human being has inalienable human rights, is intrinsically worthy of you know respect. Um, getting basic needs met, you know. So, for instance, what we know with the research is self-compassionate people, it's not like my needs count more. They're, they're willing to compromise. They're more willing to say, okay, everyone's needs are important. How do we come to a solution that's hopefully a win-win for everyone? And so a lot of people that listen to the podcast have a tr have trouble with this idea of, of value being intrinsic. Um, um, and there's a lot of self-identification with job roles. Yes. Right. Like I'm important because I'm a healer. I'm important because I'm the CEO of this company. A yes. lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs. So I'm important because I created a business that is successful and is, and is flourishing or whatever it happens to be this. Uh, what you're saying is by taking this self-compassion route, we can sort of untangle this sense of identity as being our worth over time. Yeah. So what happens, we know this in the research, is our self-worth becomes less contingent, basically on approval of the way we look, right, or success and value domains. It starts to become more intrinsic. Again, it, it's just um, the fact that we are a conscious being. That's where our worth comes from. Yeah, and, and so this is, you know, my, my work is influenced by Buddhism. And from this perspective, um, you know, all life is intrinsically valuable, right. especially human life where, where there is consciousness and, you know, a, a certain, um, yeah, a certain level of consciousness. I won't go into animals and all that because that, that'll take us way out. But basically, we're talking about human beings. Every life is worthy. And who we are is totally in, in, inextricably, <laughs> I can say this inextricably intertwined <laughs> with the rest of life, right? So who we are, the genes we got from our parents, how we are raised, the circumstances, our culture, luck, um, but yeah. also the, even the things we aren't luck, well, kind of luck that we got the genes and the, and the energy or whatever the cultural background that allowed us to achieve. And so if you, if you see this as, you know, we are part of the larger whole and nothing we do can be completely removed from other causes and conditions. It doesn't make sense to like carve it out and say, well, this bit is worthy. This person's not worthy. And this, you know, this is worthy of praise and this is worthy of blame. It's really just all life unfolding moment to moment. And um, it's how we relate to that unfolding moment to moment that starts to redirect how the unfolding occurs. Does that make sense? Yeah. So again, so after 20 years, I'm still a mess. I still get things wrong. You know, it doesn't make you stop making mistakes. But the more I'm able to relate to my stress or my difficulty with kindness, with warmth, with love, with a sense of connectedness, the more I'm able to kind of kind of steer that unfolding moment to moment in a way that leads toward health and well-being. So it's, it's, John Kabat-Zinn has a great saying for this. He says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Right. 
right? So now that we can't control things, we can't control life, we can't control ourselves, we can't control our thoughts, but we can learn to work with the unfolding of life, like with the waves, with the surfboard, you know, which is yeah. mindfulness in his case, but you could also say the same for self-compassion. It allows us to navigate the turbulence of life in a way that's much healthier. So this is something that I think that we need to stick with a bit because one of the things that really sort of gets my goat about the world of coaching is that there's this idea that we can undo limiting beliefs enough and unwind thought patterns enough and get a, a mindset that's clean enough to avoid discomfort and suffering. And one of the things that I always have to talk through with my clients is like, we're never going to get there. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, that's it, not going to happen. So let's let go of that ideal. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of spiritual bypass that goes on. Yeah. People using spirituality or even you can use self-compassion or mindfulness or anything to try to avoid suffering. You know, I like to say the only way out is through. In other words, you can't avoid suffering. It's not the way the things are set up because we are human beings with certain limitations. But when you relate, even a moment, so, uh, so I remember when my son was, I remember moments when he was just having these intense tantrums. And when I went open to the pain of that with compassion, even though it was still happening, it was still really uncomfortable and I still wished it wasn't happening. My mindset was a loving one toward the, my own pain. What you start to learn to do over time is you identify more, not with the contents of what's happening moment to moment, but with how you're relating to what's happening. Yeah. And so you don't get rid of the, you don't get rid of the pain. You don't want it. You, you probably wouldn't even want to get rid of the pain, but you, you change the way you relate to the pain in a way that there could be real fulfillment. Um, even this is going to sound weird, but if your heart's open enough, there can even be joy in moments of real suffering. The joy isn't in the contents of what's happening. It's in just having an open heart, opening to life, feeling connected to the larger whole. You know, that's where the joy is. It's, not, it's totally independent of what's happening moment to moment. You've mentioned connection quite a bit, and it is obviously such a big part of burnout, this sort of feeling disconnected and, and feeling like you're alone and not part of a community and don't have this interaction with people. And one of the exercises I often do with people is ask them if they could be sitting in there trying talking to me if it wasn't for at least like 3,500 other people. Yes. <laughs> just, just look around you and let's sit down and talk about how we really are connected. Like how many apps do you have in your phone? How many people do you think needed to exist just to create those and the phone itself and the furniture that you're sitting at and the bread for your yeah. toast this morning. So you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is the great Zen master yeah. who recently passed, you yeah. know, talked about this is interbeing. And here's, here's, you may not know this. So I have the three components of self-compassion, which is kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. Common humanity is really pointing to interbeing. I call it common humanity so people can understand it. You know, it's actually more than just the fact that we're all human beings. It's actually pointing to the fact that we're all, I'm going to say it again, inextricably intertwined <laughs> in this way that creates interbeing. You know, and, and that is the truth. And, and we know that logically. We can kind of make sense logically. We aren't going to argue with it logically, but we forget it emotionally. Yes. And so what self-compassion does is it just reminds us, oh, yeah, this is the way things are. It's not just me. I'm not alone. It's not my fault. It is my responsibility in that no one else is going to come in and do it for me, but I don't have to blame myself because if I, if I could have made the right choice, I would have. The whole yeah. reason I think it's a mistake is because I didn't know at the time. Maybe I thought it was the right choice, but you know what I mean? So I'm going to say hindsight is 2020. We're all doing the best we can in the moment, given the resources we have available, including things like you might have cravings going on or addictions or all these other things that are also influencing you. And again, you didn't choose to have those. Yeah. Brain, it's your biology, it's your culture, it's your history. There's just so many factors that went into every moment in terms of what we do. And we can have compassion for that. We don't have to feel alone in that. It's like part of this, again, this larger unfolding. 
But what we can do, again, we can't stop the waves, but we can learn to serve. We can relate to this with our hearts open. And that does make a huge difference in our ability to cope and our ability not to be burned out and to be less exhausted, to feel more connected to others. For instance, in my research, we find people are more able to have find a satisfaction in giving compassion to others mm. when they give compassion to themselves. It's not just a chore. It's actually they can take joy in it. Um, so for my entrepreneurial service providers and caregivers and mothers, and, you know, there's a lot of research that says, you know, when you give to people, you feel better. But what you're saying now is when you give to people and you also give to yourself, then that giving to other people is even more powerful. It's more satisfying and it's less draining. So if, if giving goes one way, it's not like, you know, I've got five units of compassion. So if I give to me, I'm only going to have two left over for someone else. It's additive. The more it flows inward, the more you have available to flow outward. And also going back to interconnection, um, you know, the way the human brain works is with empathic resonance. Our internal mind state impacts others. Other people's mind state impacts us. The illusion of separation really is an illusion. That's not even how the brain works. Yeah. You cultivate compassion, kindness, warmth inside. This is something you bring to every single person you interact with mm-hmm. because they pick up on that through their mirror neurons and empathic resonance. So yeah. really the whole idea that we're separate, isolated individuals is just not true. Yes. And so what you cultivate inside literally infects people on the outside and also gives you more energy to help in more conventional ways. I ask people, I ask clients to consider what ingredient they're adding to the common emotional soup that we're all swimming in. Love it. Exactly. Right. Like we're all swimming in this emotional soup together. And one of the things that I loved about my Chinese medicine training were these ideas of interconnectedness and this idea of looking at things as a system. Like there's a lot of talk when it comes to burnout. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that are unknown, a lot of claims being made, and there's a lot of talk about finding a root cause. And I'm like, you guys, (laughs) that's like... (laughs) Let's back up from that idea real real quick, because there are so many factors, many of which we will never know or understand or realize that it was somehow connected. And so can we just cut ourselves a little bit of slack here? Right. Yeah. And we'll probably never get rid of it. Right. We we'll never be in a state being perfectly energized and not overtaxed or not, you know, um, right. satisfied. Um, but we can relate to it in a way that's more functional, that works better. And that way, from my point of view, there's a lot of things. It's not, you know, I don't want to say self-compassion is the answer to everything, but I think it's an essential ingredient. Certainly helps. Absolutely essential. If we don't have it, we're in trouble, put it that way. Right, right. And so one the last thing that I want to take, spend a little bit of time on is something that comes up really frequently on the podcast and in the Facebook group that is, well, I'm so empathic that I just feel everything from everybody and, uh, you know, I can't, I can't help it. And I don't necessarily think that that's empathy when you're just sort of walking around, like assuming that you're understanding everyone's pain sometimes without even talking to them. So let's talk about empathy for a couple of minutes. Yeah, well, so I mean, a lot of it is how you define empathy. Empathy actually is simply defined as emotional resonance. So a con artist might have very good empathy skills, and they use that ability to feel those emotions as a chance to take rip them off. So it doesn't necessarily mean care. And it is true that a lot of some people are naturally more empathic than others. Women, for instance, are more empathic than men. Is it biology? Is it nurture? Probably a little bit of both. Um, but there's also individual variation. Um, so I don't know. I mean, some people, I'm not one of them actually, but I have met people who just say they're incredibly, they, they're really sensitive to others' emotions. Um, is it empathy? I, I think so. I think the problem is, is, is that it can easily turn into empathic distress. Mm. So when you're resonating with the pain of others and you aren't, so, so compassion is concern for suffering. Right. And there's also some, the mindfulness is some sort of empathy that's maybe a little more distance. Mindfulness has a little bit of perspective built in. Empathy sometimes has no perspective because it's not intentional the way mindfulness is. It's kind of just, um, it just happens. So mindfulness, you're connecting with the pain of others. You're aware of it. There's a little bit of distance, which is actually healthy. 
but you're also caring about the suffering. So I don't know if you know Tanya Singer's work who's looked at compassion versus empathy in the brain. And so empathy with pain, you know, is, is like activates the amygdala and the pain centers of the brain. Compassion activates the reward centers of the brain. Mm. Brain on compassion looks different than the brain on when, when it's just empathy. Compassion like provides this buffer because there's the care, there's the warmth, there's that feeling of connection, there's the love, the kindness. And these are actually positive emotions that help counteract a lot of the negative aspects of resonating with someone's pain. So if it's just empathy without compassion, um, you might either um, just get shut down, become burned out, or you might just, you know, the secondary traumatic stress, people actually get traumatized by the people's yeah. trauma. Yes. Um, you know, boundaries, boundaries have a role to play with, you know, um, I think sometimes boundaries get a bad rap, like, you know, doctors who are so boundary. Well, yeah, it goes to the extreme. You can't have, you can't be an effective caregiver if you're so boundary, you can't connect with other people's pain. On the other hand, you can't function if you feel people's pain without any way to like have, um, not be overwhelmed by it. Because if you're overwhelmed, you also can't help people. So there is this middle ground and self-compassion really helps us um, maintain that. For instance, asking, what do I need? Well, maybe it is a little too much. Yeah. Maybe I can't go there right now. Maybe I, it's just going to be overwhelming. I'm going to be no good to anyone. Maybe I can't take that phone call. Or maybe I do need to say no. I would love to help, but I can't. Um, but also what it does, for instance, we teach a practice in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program where people use the breath as a kind of metaphor for compassion. You breathe in for yourself. This is so hard for me. I feel overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I feel burnt out or whatever it is you're feeling. But you also breathe out for the person who you're with who's suffering. You know, may, may you be well, may you be strong, may you be patient, whatever you need. Breathe in for yourself, breathe out for the other. And those types of practices, especially when combined with the wisdom of knowing that we can't control everything, can really help us be around people in a lot of pain without being overwhelmed by it. So. I'm going to need about 80% of you to just rewind about three minutes and <laughs> listen to that piece. I know there's a lot, a lot of information packed into that. No, well, and, and really crucial, really crucial bits because it's really easy to burn out when you have a tendency toward empathy, whether that tendency is a trauma reaction or a gift you know, yeah. because I think it can be, I think, I think it can be both. Yeah. So if you're in that state where I oftentimes I feel like we are feeling emotions that other people don't necessarily have, but we're picking up sort of our own worries about what other people might be feeling. Right. So this is learning to distinguish that I think it is important, but the, there is this in-between and it seems like we keep going of this in-between from some sort of like complacency, passiveness, doormat life. And in the other extreme is the, you know, aggression, like electric fence boundary yes. sort of time. And in the middle is this like compassion, but it also the, the other thing that sits there is assertiveness. Yes, absolutely. You've got to be assertive. You have to be willing to draw boundaries, hopefully in a way that's kind. Right. That's not an electric fence, but also is not a doormat. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. So, but then if you, if you, if you isolate yourself, then you also aren't helping yourself or others. So it's, it's always a matter of get finding and refinding balance and it's dynamics. It's not like you get there. It's a process. Yeah. So we're always falling off, getting in balance. We're always trying to get rebalanced. But the way to do that, I mean, I really find that the three components of self-compassion, they're almost always, if they're, they're often enough, but they're certainly essential. One is mindfulness, just being aware of what's happening. This is how I'm feeling. This is what's happening. Instead of putting your head in the sand, instead of or fighting what's happening, okay, this is what's happening. This hurts. This is hard. Yeah. Common humanity. Um, it's part of life. I'm not alone in this. This is there's nothing wrong with me for experiencing this. I'm not alone in this. We're connected to others. And then kindness. What do I need? Do I need some fierce protection? Do I need to draw a boundary? Do I need to maybe open myself and be vulnerable? You know, what's healthy? And, and you'll get that wrong. But at least you're asking the question. And then when you get it wrong, instead of saying, oh, I'm so stupid for getting it wrong. It's like, okay, well, that's part of life too. What now I have I, that information. And what, exactly. What can I learn? And then we can try again. And so we really have to get away from this mindset of it's, it's that it's not about getting it right. It's about opening our heart. 
That's really what we're after. And if you give up getting it right, and you just focus mainly on how can I open my heart moment by moment, then more, we tend to get it right more often, not always, but you know what I mean? It tends to go better. Not that you don't want to use that as a clever manipulation strategy, because, you know, then you, you get a cancer diagnosis or something really, you know, things happen that you just can't do anything about. But the open heart, the open heart can hold everything. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, that's where I think, from my point of view, really what we should be investing in. Not, you know, you still have to do your you still have to do your daily life and your chores and your job and all that. But the more we focus on how can I open my heart in this moment, the happier we'll be. And then it's a lot more stable because it's not so dependent on what's happening moment by moment, which we can't really control. Which means our middle path is easier to find because we're not straying so far to the left and so far to the right and making the, the journey through the middle such such a large one, such a long one. Yes, exactly. I love lot this. So we just, I didn't realize we'd be doing so much uh, philosophy here, but <laughs> it's, it's the most fun part for me. And when yeah. I started reading your book and seeing all the the Tao in it and the Buddhism in it. And that's just been my life for so long that I was like, well, great, let's dig in. Because I think that this, this inherent idea in Buddhism of the middle path of this, of yeah. this middle way, and not that you stand in that middle way, you know, able to fall to either side, the middle way is pretty wide and you walk through it 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 and over and over and over again. And, and I think that that gives people a little more freedom to get it wrong. Yes, that's right. Freedom, permission to get it wrong. Yeah. Just try your best. Get back up on the horse and try again. <laughs> and keep your heart open while you do it. Heart open, heart open. And that and that becomes the most important thing. I yeah. love this. Well, that wraps up our time, which is amazing to me because it just went like that. Yes, but I did. am so, so grateful for this conversation. And I always trust that every fried episode is will reach all of the ears and hearts that it needs to reach to do the work that it needs to do in this world. And I am sure that this one um, will be well received. So thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your spirit and your energy today. Welcome, Kate. It's been a pleasure. All right, Fried fans, we're wrapping up another episode of Fried the Burnout Podcast. If you are not yet in our Facebook group, we are waiting there with open hearts and open arms. Come hang with us because you're not alone. We are all connected and you don't have to do this by yourself. Until then. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan.